1: Both Keith and Ron had a part of the Old Timers Day festivities. It was such a special day to be a Mets fan, and I imagine also to be a Mets player.
2: You know, it was amazing to me. It started with Keith and I just getting changed in the locker room. And there was Steve Cohen sitting with all the ball players. They're telling all their stories, and he was feeling as though they have a Ph.D. in stories, you know, ball players. He was riveted on every single word. That's how it started. And then to go out there and see the guys you played with, to be able to shake hands with Jay Cook, who got it. Uh, Jay Hooker got it all started with the first win. Ken McKenzie holds a dear place to me because uh, he was one of the other Yale that played uh, for the Mets Ball Club. It was quite a day.
1: And McKenzie, the only winning pitcher for the 1962 Mets, don't forget. How about your experience?
2: Well, my experience is uh, I've gone through quite a few old-timers Day in St. Louis where there was a lot of tradition. I have never, Gary, experienced something so exciting. i got to tell you, the fans were just wonderful. I was wondering, you know, how many fans are going to come early, and they just about filled the stadium up. And there was so much love out there. And to see everybody from all the decades, six decades represented in Met history was just absolutely fantastic.
3: It's another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast here on this Monday, August the 29th, 2022. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media and you're just showing off the podcast, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at com. No G, Mike Silva at Podcast.com. and I want to welcome in the good folks from the Fan Sided Podcasting Network, as well as RisingApple.com. Well, welcome to another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast, a day later than normal, but not a dollar short. Hope everybody had a great weekend. Mets taking three or four from the Rockies, and, well, I mean, the big news and the theme of this show is going to be Old Timers Day. I mean, the first Old Timers Day in nearly 30 years, and what a way to celebrate old-timers day then our good friend it's been a while since we had him on the program he has his own podcast as well greg prince the uh 50 of the uh, great blog faith and fear and flushing and look when you when it comes to met's history uh, he's kind of like the grand poobah there of met's history who else would i have on when we're going to be talking about met's old-timer day and uh look jay horowitz said earlier today i think it was on a tweet or maybe late last night that guy who's been with the organization since 1980, been a lot of moments in Mets history, great moments, world series, playoff games, big moments. But this old timers day that Jay put together is right there at the top. And, you know, I wasn't there in the building, but I certainly had a chance to check it out at home. And, you know, Greg had a chance to catch up with me uh, earlier tonight. And you'll hear that, that conversation. I don't even call it interview that conversation just a little bit, but you may ask, why am I coming to you a day late? Well, first, primarily, it's because Greg couldn't come on on Sunday, and I, I wanted to do the the segment with him. But second, I took a night off from baseball and went to a concert at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, I went to the Harry Styles concert. I know you guys are going to laugh. My wife's a big Harry Styles fan. Uh, took a break, got a chance to check out the Brave score on the MLB.com app, so I was a little happy leaving the garden there on Sunday night. So coming to you. Um, not much more to say that other than I know you as Mets fans saying, why are you, you know, kicking out on baseball for a night on Sunday for a concert? Well, sometimes when you're in a relationship, you got to do what you got to do guys. Right. But a great performer, um, may not be the type of music you're into, not necessarily the type of music I'm into, but uh, good performance. And I haven't been to Madison square garden in a long time. I think it was a a Nick game in 2014. So I haven't been there since they did the renovation. And I got to tell you, the, uh, Uh, Much more comfortable experience at the garden, the renovated garden. And now now they're doing all sorts of stuff at Penn Station. You can't really get in in the main entrance anymore. So it's a bit of a hassle there. But you you don't want to hear about that. You're here to listen to Mets baseball. But anyway, not going to get too deep. Mets taking on the Dodgers. Really big test series. I'll talk about that on the way out. Uh, primarily what we're going to be talking about here on um, the Talking Mets podcast on this edition is Old Timers Day. And you may say, you know, Mike, what what's the point here? And the Mets are in the midst of this big series coming up against the Dodgers, 35 games over 500, three games up on the Braves, At the end of the season and the playoffs is in sight. Uh, we should be talking about uh, this test series. We should be talking about DeGrom and Scherzer and Lindor's slump and how do the Mets stack up in the bullpen versus those Dodger bats, that great Dodger offense that's averaging five and a half runs per game? Well, yeah, we're going to get to that. And really, I think it's pretty obvious that this is a test series. And uh, the Mets, who played the Dodgers even out in L.A. earlier in the year, now the Dodgers have a couple of components back. They're not facing their top pitchers. But, uh, you know, there's still a team that could go out there and hit the ball all around the yard. Uh, we want to see where they're at because ultimately – this is probably the one team we're not sure whether the Mets could beat in a postseason series. We feel that they could you know, certainly be a tough series against the Braves or the Cardinals. And look, even in a shorter series with the Phillies or San Diego, I know they've been struggling, and there's all sorts of things going on with Josh Hader. He's, he's been like almost replaced. It's like Space Jam, like what happened to Josh Hader there out of the bullpen. Uh, you know those would be tough series. But the Dodgers are the team that, we're not so sure because they're the, the benchmark. They're who the Mets want to be. They're who Steve Cohen has talked about from the very first press conference. So we'll talk all about that. We'll get a little bit into that. But the reason why I think Old Timers Day is so significant is that as Mets fans, especially those as, who have been listening to this program for a long time, we are really conditioned to, and I'll use the word, manifest negativity. Because there's been so much stress and anxiety over the years. And really look at the glass half full or Charlie Brown in the football. I mean, Devin Gordon wrote a book about this. He was on our show last year. And uh, I think that, you know, ultimately, even the pathway to Steve Cohen, which was exacerbated in, in uh, unfortunately, with a bad situation with COVID and the pandemic, where the punts very well probably would still own the team if not for the fact that they lost a year at Gate. And had to get out. I mean, even there was a point where Steve Cohen was in. He was out. I mean, it wasn't a clear path. And then, of course, the first year of Cohen ownership was filled with all sorts of potholes and drama right from the start. So nothing has ever come easy. But I got to tell you, ever since Thanksgiving Day or a little after Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving Eve, when the whole Stephen Matz thing went down and we were all upset that Matt's turned down Cohen's money, thankfully, you might not have Chris Bassett if that that did happen. Things have gotten really a lot better with Billy Epler at the helm and Buck Showalter as the manager. And I was thinking about Cohen. I don't know who tweeted this out. It might have been uh, Ernie Dove, who does a great job on Twitter, has been on the show and and talks minor league baseball all the time. Tweeted out, look, the Mets have a top, you know, investment in the farm system. They've got a great manager. Uh, they're they're investing in the roster and payroll. They clearly are investing in infrastructure and player development and technology, both at the big league and the minor league level. And they've got an owner that cares. And they've got an owner that now sees the gold mine that this franchise is. Yes, there's still the yoke around the neck that we talk about. That, you know, Cowbell, let's say, you know, you know, channeling Cowbell man there. And that is a big yoke that is going to continue to be there until they win their next championship. But a lot of people saw over the years negativity and mockery and being Mets fans. And even a question, I know some of the mainstream media question, is there really even this great fan base? But we all knew those that have been to Shea Stadium and City Field over the years, we all know that this was a goldmine. Yeah, it's surrounded by chop shops and, and highways and empty lots and, and a lot of ugly outside of City Field. But it's this beautiful jewel of a stadium Uh, that unfortunately didn't really honor its own team history. It was honoring a a great player, a a transcendent major league player in Jackie Robinson, but not much else. And in just a matter of a couple of years, you've got your Tom Seaver statue. You've got all that investment in the ball club and the minor leagues that we talked about. And now you've got Steve Cohen really understanding history, whether it be retiring Keith Hernandez's number and even allowing Keith back in the fold to interact with the players or bringing back this old-timers day. Really showing the fans that, hey, there's a lot of things that have not gone right over the course of the last 30 years. And the prior ownership group didn't invest in some of the around the fringes way. I mean, look, I've told you guys, they used to bring us in independent media all the time. And all the way up to the top, we'd give feedback. I mean, you couldn't go much higher. I mean, Jeff Wilpon knew what the feedback was. And you always heard, no, you know, fans don't want banner day, fans don't want old timers day. The younger generation has moved on. And I just said to myself, well, the Yankees haven't. And it was almost like this organization was ashamed of who it was that we'll have those things when we become the Yankees, when we become the Cardinals. Meaning when we win 13 pennants, um, or we win three in a row, or we have this, you know, dominant stretch. And then we could celebrate our history, because then we'll have something to be proud of. And History is not about championships and World Series. Oh, yeah, that's part of it. It's about the memories. And I've always said this, and I I really believe this, and I'd love to hear your feedback on it. It's about the memories that the connection with you and the ball club have. And those could be from great seasons like 1986. Bad seasons like 1993 could bring up a special memory about a player or a game you went to. Look, I went to a game in 1992, right before the worst team money can buy. a, A failed season a season where everything went wrong despite the high expectations with Jeff Torbork at the helm. Bobby Bonilla's first season in New York. And I went to a game, turn back the clock night. It was turn back the clock to 1962, Mets against the Reds. And I saw Bonilla hit a walk-off three-run homer off Rob Dibble, who was basically the Edwin Diaz at the time of the big leagues, dominant reliever. Guys weren't throwing 98 miles an hour like Dibble did back then. He was an anomaly, not like today when everybody does it. And that was a cool moment, and that was a fun moment, and that was a lost season. So it's not just about the great seasons and the fun that you have in those great seasons. Oh, those are really special, like 1999 and 2006 and 2000, and I could go on and on and on, 2015. It's about the memories throughout the history of the team and the characters and the players. Like uh, There are guys that are on the 96 Mets, like Rico Brogna on the 95 Mets, who I rooted for and, and have... Cherished memories. I remember Rico hitting a game-winning home run against the Braves when he first came up in '94 and had that great stretch. And you, you thought he was the, you know, the next diamond in the rough that the Mets stole off of the Detroit Tigers in a in a, a, a nondescript trade that they had made. And that's what makes it special. And you know, part of what I was thinking as I'm watching the festivities on Saturday was how lucky I am that. I'm really living through the creation of Mets history. I'm 45 years old. I've been watching the ball club now since I was 10. So I've been watching the ball club for 35 years. And it was funny because I went to the first Old Timers Day and only Old Timers Day I went to was in 1989, May of 1989, early season Old Timers Day. There was a Saturday afternoon game. It was a game of the week. I remember it. You can look it up on Baseball Reference. Mets Giants, May of 1989. I don't know the exact date, but... You can see when the Mets played the Giants at Shea Stadium in the, that May uh, month of '89. Uh, they lost the game 3 0. I remember Mike Kruko, who always dominated the Mets, pitched the shutout. Lenny Dykstra was still on the team. It was a month before he was traded for Juan Samuel. And they were celebrating the '69 team, and I think they had some stars of the '60s. Like I remember Nate Colbert being there, some others. I, I have a scorecard somewhere where I actually kept score of the Old Timers game, too. And I feel like they were more competitive, the old-timers games back then, than what we saw on Saturday, which was kind of carnival but fun. I mean, different story altogether. That's a whole different conversation. You see how how this – mind you, I'll tell you what. The speed of the game, it changes on plays. Like I saw Jesse Orozco pitch, and the motion looked the same. But, boy, the body wasn't moving as fast. But in 1989, the point I'm trying to make is that's all the Mets had was 1969. The 80s were still – we were in the 80s. Those were – they were. we were living the good old days. They weren't history yet. And you had the late 70s where things were just so bad that you basically had Lee Mazzilli as the only positive of the late 70s. You were still only a little over a decade past the, 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 the Midnight Massacre trade of Tom Seaver, which was still sticking in, still to this day sticks in many people's craws. So outside of 69 and that miracle, and maybe you want to throw 73 in there in the near miss against Oakland – it was about bad Mets team. They were still trying to justify their 86 World Series. So they're in the midst of trying to repeat, they were a bit of a disappointment. I mean, 88 firmly put that Mets team as a disappointment. 87-88, the back-to-back disappointments, they went from the Darlings and the Upstart and the Toast of the Town to maybe this team is not going to fulfill the promises that we put out, fans, media, and everything. So there wasn't the history component. We were still living in the Mets Early times, I mean, think about it. The franchise was about 27 years old. What, 27, maybe 28 years old? And think about the Yankees, who have been around since the early 1900s, 120-something years. That's like being a Yankees fan in the late 1920s when Babe Ruth and Murderer's Row were around. Now, I'm not trying to compare the two, but we were in the infancy of the Mets as a franchise. And since then, we've seen... Um, bad times, like the worst team money can buy in the early 1990s. We saw the Bobby Valentine Mets, which really was the first bridge into Mets history, and the Piazza trade, and the 99 team, and the 2000 World Series, and then after that, Omar Minaya and David Wright, and Jose Reyes leading into Sandy Alderson and what you thought was going to be money, bowl money, but then Madoff happened, And then there's 2015 and so much has happened. All these little errors that were bridged. I mean, how weird is it to see Daniel Murphy as an old timer when I could close my eyes and I could see game one and two of the NLCS against the Cubs, where Murphy's just hit home run after home run after home run. And I'm saying to myself, wow, I was really wrong about this guy. You know, this guy drove me nuts defensively. All of a sudden now he's, he's Babe Ruth. In the postseason. So I like to say that, you know, what I saw on Saturday was a culmination of years and years of fandom, as well as covering this team, which I've done as, you know, independent media media since 2007. And it really struck me that there's a lot of history now. There's a lot of good history. There's a lot of characters, you know, whether it be R.A. Dickey or Johnny Franco or, you know, great players like John Olerud who were great for a short period of time, or players that were great for a longer period, like David Wright, like Carlos Beltran. There's all these different eras now that you could celebrate. So Old Timer's Day is not something that you're forcing anymore. It's something that should happen. And the thing about this year, as we've, I think, as this show has been re-energized and moved away from really... a a negative media centric show, which was necessary about how, you know, the Mets and defending a little bit of how the Mets are portrayed and really trying to show you guys that this is not all bad. I always try to put a balanced product out there. Um, But we've started to hear, recognize some of the good moments in Mets history. We talked about the 1962 Mets earlier this summer with David Bagdag, the author of, of, of Mudville. Uh, you know, we we had Cleon Jones on. I, I replayed Dave Malicki interview in the first Subway series. So we have started to look back, and I think we've particularly started to look back at the creation of the Mets. And I think it's now's not the time to do that because there's a pennant to be won here. There's a division to be won here, and we're here to talk about it and assess it. But at some point, I think the creation, and I think you saw that with the cherry on top of what happened on Saturday, which was Willie Mays. And the prom- the promise that Mrs. Payson, the original owner of the Mets, made for Willie to come on over to the Mets to end his career and get his number retired. But the connection of the Giants and the Dodgers and New York and how the creation of the Mets was something really special and not easy. There's a book about how that all came about. And I'll be honest, you know, Willie Mays at first, when I heard about it, and I had heard rumblings about this. For a little bit that this could happen, I did not know it was going to happen at old timers. I thought maybe next year or the next couple of years. And when I first heard that they wanted to retire Willie's number, I was like, "Come on, that's like retired like the Rays retired Wade Boggs's number, or the Yankees retiring, you know, uh, Wade Boggs's number, or you know, I know, Roger Clemens. That might be crazy, but you know, Roger Clemens' number. You know, guys that played with him. Now Clemens a little bit different scenario than Willie Mays or." the Knicks the Cavaliers re, uh, retiring Clyde Frazier's number. You know, think about anybody who was a great player and then went into their career somewhere for like a year or two. You know, Babe Ruth, what did he play for the Braves at the end of his career, the Boston Braves? Like do they retire his number? So when I hear about that, you kind of think of all that and you're like I'm against this. This is carnival. This is like the Mets trying to force history. But then when you hear the story, when you read About the kind of owner that Joan Payson was, how she was a pioneer at a time when women were not even sniffing sports. I mean, let's face it. You know, now, you know, it's all about how can we diversify front offices and and on field staff and all that stuff with all different types of people. You know, when Joan Payson was the Mets owner and it's not really applauded a lot, it's not talked about a lot which is a shame because there's probably more to that story. And the late Marty Noble, who covered the Mets for years and years and years, Jack Lang, guys like that probably would have, if they were still around, would have some great perspective on it. It's a shame that it wasn't really celebrated, that the Mets have ignored their history under prior ownership and probably should have celebrated the fact that, hey, they had a female owner at a time when you did not want to put females in those kind of positions of power. Uh, Something that would be applauded and wrote about ad nauseum today, was not even talked about. And it happened. It happened in the 1960s and 70s. A totally different American culture. And, you know, when you hear it from that perspective and then you hear about uh, her promise to Willie, unfulfilled. And Willie Mays was a great player. I mean, you heard Cleon Jones mention him a little bit uh, on Old Timers They mentioned him a little bit on this show just a week ago. I mean, but to have, you know, I'm thinking now, and this is how wrong I was to be against the Willie Mays number retiring to have a guy, this iconic player, in your locker room while you're trying to win a pennant, and he's got a bad knee. And I think Cleon was talking about the bad knee and how he, you know, Willie's body and mind were not aligned. His mind said, I'm Willie Mays and I'm going to play every day. His mind said, hey, your knee is swelled up like a balloon. You can't. But, you know, having that kind of leadership, having that kind of guy in a clubhouse uh, means a ton. I mean, we talk about it all the time in the current uh, environment, how, uh, and I think I talked about this with Cleon how veterans and what they could pass down even though they may be compromised and can't perform think about how Eduardo Escobar has been applauded for his leadership and and what he the intangibles he brings to the team now granted he has no he's, he's nowhere near as who Willie Mays ever was and he's nowhere near the Eduardo Escobar that you thought you were getting 25 homers and 85 to 100 RBIs from but he's had an impact and he's you know that institutional knowledge that he passes down to younger players And I think Willie did that. And I think him coming to New York, understanding that the promise was made, what he meant to New York baseball, New York Giants baseball, and the birth of the Mets from the Giants and the Dodgers. And look, the the Dodgers, uh, you know, the Mets have many similarities to the Brooklyn Dodgers, the wait till next year, Brooklyn Dodgers. But remember, Mrs. Payson was a minority shareholder of the New York Giants. And, and, you know, she came into New York and, and brought the Mets here and, and, the Mets are as much the New York Giants' birth as they are the Dodgers, even though they don't get mentioned as much. I mean, the nostalgia of the Dodgers is a lot different than the nostalgia of the Giants in the Polo Grounds, but they play, the Mets played at the Polo Grounds. So, you know, in summary, I really think, you know, and I want to get to Greg Prince, but I think it really struck me how much history the Mets have and how important it is now for these kind of events to happen. They're no more—they're they're an iconic franchise. I mean, A-Rod even said that in an interview with John Heyman, and Joel Sherman, that they are one of the six or seven iconic baseball franchises out there, right? they with the Cubs and the Red Sox and the Yankees and the Cardinals and teams like that. They have this history. There's, it's such a great time to be a Mets fan with the investment in the team and, and the investment in the fans and the brand that the owner is doing. And now if they could only get help from the, the municipalities in the city to kind of build up around Citi Field in a, in a positive way, you know, not bad politics, good politics, and I know that's going to be tough, and it's going to take a long time. I know they're talking about casinos and everything. I'm not sure that that's the kind of build up around. I'd like a more positive around the park experience, but I know that's casinos and some of the the sin vices that are out there uh, that make money are, are ultimately part of building up infrastructure around a stadium. You know, when I've gone to PNC Park in Pittsburgh and the little village around there, and and other towns like Wrigleyville, you know, it's like, why can't the Mets have that? They can. They've had chop shops and they're in the middle of nowhere for so long. And, you know, now you see that this is a team worth investing with an owner that understands that it's a positive investment and all the good stuff that comes from looking back at Mets history. Forget about the failures. Forget about the differences we had with players and coaches and managers and, you know, teams that we're still angry with because they, they didn't meet expectations that we put up there for them. Think about the connections we had with family members and friends and times at the ballpark and summer nights and fall evenings and early spring events that, you know, we invested all this time in this team because it was like being part of the family. You know, it's a, it's an institution in our lives. And when it goes away between, you know, November and well, now mid-November, if you go all the way to the World Series and pitchers and catchers sometime in February, uh, we miss it. And, uh, you know, a lot of you are like me. You remember life events and you remember situations because you connected to a ball game, To where you were when Mike Piazza was acquired by the Mets or where you were when uh, the 9-11 home run happened by Piazza or where you were uh, when David Wright got his first hit uh, or R.A. Dickey pitched back-to-back one-hitters. I'm just throwing stuff out there, you know, trying to be contemporary. You know, look, maybe where you were when Terry Pendleton hit the home run. In 1987, you could you remember things because of baseball and um, and I think Steve Cohen did an awesome job. And these are the kind of things that were going through my head as I was watching really bad baseball, guys who can't play anymore, guys who are, you know, I remember them a certain way, but they don't look a certain way, but they were having a lot of fun. And you could tell each and every one of them from a Hall of Famer like Piazza, you know, down to, you know, Ed Cranepool and Doug Sisk and guys like that. We're having a great time and really enjoying being part of being a Met and being part of the festivities. And the current team coming out like they did during the Hernandez ceremony shows you how in touch they are with the uniform that they have on and and the kind of professionalism respect that, uh, that, that comes out of that clubhouse. And that's not something that should be applauded. That's their job. But in today's day and age in this game, it's something that's very special and very rare. And when you have a special group like this, You try to capitalize that and try to go all the way. We'll see. We'll talk more about that later. But all right, let's take a quick break. When I come back, Greg Prince, Faith and Fear and Flushing. We're going to talk a little bit about old-timers day. He was in the building, as I like to say, and his thoughts on Willie Mays and Willie Mays' number being retired. What does he think about the naysayers who were like me that said, ah, this was a bad idea. Now I came to see the light with you know, kind of the rationale. But I was one of those guys. This is a bad idea when I first heard about it, thrown about my first reaction to it. What does Greg think about that? What did he like about Old Timer's Day? What was his reaction being in the, in the building? That and more right after this. Ladies and gentlemen,
2: Willie May. When a ball player is one of the best to ever play the game, he's an all-time when an all-time great changes the way we play the game, well for for he's transcendent. And when a transcendent ball player calls New York home, he's tied to that city forever. He inspires generations to follow in his footsteps. Many greats have represented this city over the years, but only one has had an identity so unique he was known as the Say Hey Kid. Willie Mays perfected the craft of baseball. Everyone wanted to be Willie Mays, especially the kids who played stickball in the streets with him. When the Giants moved in 58, hearts were broken. But that wasn't the end of Willie Mays' New York story. In 1962, a new tradition was born in New York. And nearly 10 years later, the city was reunited with the Say Hey Kids. Mays worked that magic in his Mets debut, slugging a game winning forward. Thank you, Winnie Mays, for helping write the story of our game, for helping write the story of our city, for helping write the story of our Mets.
3: friend of the show you guys know him greg prince faith and fear and flushing also has a podcast of his own i'm not sure i've had him on since he started the podcast it's been recent national league town podcast at nl underscore town greg what a beautiful weekend weather wise baseball wise and who else there's nobody else i'd rather have i've known you for almost 20 years i think there is nobody else i'd rather have after what is a great day Old Timers Day, a day that even Jay Horwitz said might be bigger, in his opinion, than some of the experiences he's had with postseason games and whatnot. So welcome to the program. And you were, to quote the great Mike Francesca, in the building. So who a better guy to to bring it up? How you doing, my friend?
4: I'm good, Mike. Thank you very much for having me on this uh, splendid, can't think of a better word, occasion than the aftermath of Old Timers Day at City Field a phrase I don't know that either one of us ever thought we would be saying out loud other than in the hypothetical and usually the rueful, as in why don't they bring Old Timers Day to City Field? Well, they have, and we've lived it and we've loved it, and we're better off for it.
3: It's amazing because and, and this is not anything that's you know proprietary. Mets brought independent media and the late Shannon Ford for years and would ask for feedback. You were there. Steve Keen was there. um, Shannon from Mets police. I remember those meetings, even the the owner of the team, wink, wink, might have showed up one time and you kept hearing nobody wants banner day. Nobody wants old timers day. Nobody, you know, the generation has changed. And look, the baseball was bad let's admit it the baseball was bad it goes to show you uh and I talked to one of the guys that was in the game I'll leave him nameless he said didn't realize how much speed goes um you know after so many years and you could see like you see Jesse Orosco throw and you think it's Jesse Orosco, but it's like a slow down version of Jesse Orosco, like Nintendo like RBI baseball Jesse Orozco but uh, it was a fun day and a day that had some surprises with the retiring of Willie Mays' number. So t- talk a little bit about your experience. You know, you come into the ballpark. You know, it's been, I don't know if you were at the 1994 uh, event, you know, all those years ago, almost 30 years ago. Uh, talk about it a little bit.
4: Sure. I was at the 1994 event. I had been at seven old-timers days in my life, and I had given up hope on that number ever budging. Now, the Mets had done some quasi-old-timers-type events through the years and had done them well. It always seemed very grudging that they were doing us a big favor. And like you, I remember the feedback of, well, that's not really the Mets thing, tradition and history and all of that. Well, I think we learned that it is our thing. It was our thing from 1962 forward. We had a team that had... About three months of history to it, yet they held an old timers day in July sure. of sixty-two. And <laughs> they knew from whence they came and they honored that and they honored baseball and New York and all of that stuff until there were some Mets to honor. And then they started doing that, and then it went away. Well, it's back, like you said. Uh coming into the ballpark, coming to the ballpark, just being immersed in a crowd that was lined up for what appeared to be quite a while because they were very long lines. And I've seen that for bobbleheads and garden gnomes and things like that. They weren't giving anything away, Mike. They were just having the players introduced at 4.30 and people were lined up to get in for gates that didn't open until 3.30. So it was just a matter of getting looks and sitting down and being a part of this. And, when they retired number 17 in July, I was amazed by how much vintage 1986 stuff had come out of people's closets. Not not just retro stuff, but stuff that had either been well-preserved and people still fit sure. into or had been passed down. This time, I just felt like I was watching the entire history of the New York Mets on people's backs. Because you had people honoring Casey Stengel and Gil Hodges and Willie Mays before we knew it was going to be a day eric sherman eric
3: sherman the author of uh he, of Kings and Queens, wearing a Willie mays jersey didn't yeah. know that i he, mean i heard rumblings about Willie mays but i mean even he said look there was difference between rumblings he didn't know he didn't have any insider yeah, and he
4: wasn't the only 24 in the crowd but there were you know, 24s and 41s and 37s and 8s and 17s and and people you haven't thought of at all never mind you know the, sure. the the royal high priests of Mets baseball. <laughs> and then just to experience the fact that these guys were all mingling on the field, even before we got to hear them introduced and got to see them come out, whether it was being wheeled out, walking slowly, walking with assistance, being escorted or being, shall we say spry enough to jog out because some sure. of these guys weren't playing very long ago. And in the course of the afternoon, I who pride myself on being very exact about when somebody was a Met and when somebody was no longer a Met and who he played with and who he didn't play with, I just let all of that go. And I just said, you know what? I'm I'm pretty sure Jose Reyes and Tim Tuffle formed an infield together. That <laughs> I'm pretty yeah, sure the top somewhere Hull, Martello right. cologne. It just all became one wonderful melange of Mets. And you could just feel the warmth down on the field, and you could feel the warmth up in the stands. And this is all before the, the old timers game, and it's all before the surprise announcement. And how often is there an actual surprise
3: in your life that you're in happy social media? Right. In social media times. Think surprised about, by yeah. surprised by. I mean, think about yeah. and, and Sandy Alderson said this. They kept yeah. the lid on it. And I look, I I heard some rumblings about it. And, and I kind of like, ah, retiring Willie Mays's number. That's, that's crazy. Like, that's like, um, you know, the Cleveland Cavaliers retiring Clyde Frazier's number. I know the 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 Tampa Bay Rays, it's it's not, no, it's not
4: absolutely nothing like that. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, it's
3: nothing (laughs) like that.
4: No, and you know (laughs) what, Greg,
3: and, and, and it's funny because that was my reaction when I first Mm -hmm. heard it. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I don't want the Mets to start doing honorary retiring of numbers. I mean, Jackie Robinson's one thing, Um, you know, it's like Max Scherzer getting his number retired for pitching a couple of years for the Mets, you know. But then when but then when you heard the story of Mrs. Payson and her promise, unfulfilled promise, then it crystallized a little bit, a little bit more. And look, I wasn't around in 1972 and 73. You were. So I see the passion in your voice. What yeah. Willie Mays meant coming to the Mets and his role there. So talk about that. So for the naysayers who are a little upset, saying the they're... Mets have gone a road too far. Okay. Why are they I, wrong I, in your Okay. First off, I don't hear
4: the naysayers any longer. I pay them no mind, <laughs> at least after Saturday. <laughs> uh, you know, look, I get it. Glyde Frazier, you know, anybody, you know, Warren Spawn half a season as a New York Mets to bring it back sure. to the Mets, that sort of thing. I get it. Uh, this was different. This is a when you see that circle up there in the left field rafters that will have 24, consider it a circle of one. There is one player for whom you do that sort of thing. And I think Howie Rose and whoever <laughs> signed off on all of this ultimately, Steve Cohn, I suppose but everybody who contributed to the decision right. recognized and sold the idea. Framed the idea, the Mrs. Payson part of it, the New York National League Heritage, Heritage part, the homecoming part of it, the, yeah, you did kind of have to be there in 72 and 73 to really recognize the grip that Willie Mays had on New York, the presence Willie Mays had maintained in New York in the hearts of New York fans that made it a big effing deal, to quote our president, that uh, you would bring <laughs> Willie Mays back to New York that it wasn't let's get Warren spawn here. Cause he may, I'd still have some innings in his arm. Let's get Eddie Murray here. Cause maybe he can still drive in a few runs. It wasn't like that. And you know, there, there's really the only parallel you have is Hank Aaron in Milwaukee and they wasted and that's no a good time. Retired for number a good 44. One. And you know, I can't, if you can't see it after what they put on diamond vision, or City Vision, and what, how, how he framed it and the Mrs. Payson piece of it. And the fact that the number was never given out regularly, that it was held in abeyance for 11 years after he left his coaching position, that it came out of the closet, so to speak, for about ten minutes in nineteen ninety, and quickly went Kelvin back Torvey, in. who had Kelvin who Torvey. had some
3: hits in that bat. If you, yeah.
4: you're, he had some hits in twenty four. Kelvin yeah, Torve no, got a fortune I, I saw start his over the weekend, batted five forty five or something like that, uh, <laughs> yeah. as number twenty four. Then he switched to thirty nine, and his career went back to being Kelvin Torvey, sadly. But then it went; it goes back into retirement or quasi retirement, I should say. Ricky Henderson comes along, wore twenty four in his career, asked Willie's permission. Willie granted and that that's the first time I heard Willie say Mrs. Payson told me that number would be up on the wall someday because Marty Noble did a story in Newsday in the spring of 99 and the, it hit me all at once that like they're giving it out well I understand Ricky Henderson but then Ricky Henderson was done in two years and it went back into this state of limbo where it existed until Robinson Cano came along and Robinson Cano to be fair has a Claim on wearing the number that he wanted because he was a, right. a very good player. But it, it rubbed me the wrong way because the, the Mets were so willing, not only so willing to give it to him, but never said a word about Willie Mays. This is in the last days of the Wilpon era. Yeah. They had a nice, I remember they had a nice presentation at the 42 sculpture in the Rotunda saying Robinson Cano, named for Jackie Robinson. He honors Jackie Robinson by wearing. The four and the two on his back, without saying a word about twenty-four and who that was for. So Cano left us, and it's not like we don't have enough numbers to give out. It's not like we really got. We got to keep twenty-four around for the next fourth outfielder or whoever. So you know, again, I, I and you know what I love about this, Mike, and I and. Sorry if I raised my voice. Before. No, not at all. Get passionate about it. No, it's but that's this what is, this is
3: about. This that's is what this, 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 is this is what radio is about. I love this. This is stuff. why
4: I never pursued sports talk radio. Because I I apologize for raising my voice. No, don't, don't apologize. <laughs> so, Believe me, but, that's the um, nicest thing
3: people say. You know, I drive from Queens Boulevard to Long Island every day. They're probably the nicest thing someone said while I'm trying to get off of Queens Boulevard to the LIE, my friend. Let's put it that way. Yeah,
4: but I th- I think this is such a special case, and I I am thrilled not having just like. When Gil Hodges was not getting to the Hall of Fame, and just like when Tom Seaver did not have a statue, and just like when number seventeen was not retired, I will never have to write another column declaring that this must be righted. It has been righted. Twenty four will be up there, and I think the second it's up there, and I, I will just circle back to the nineteen seventies and let you know, somebody who was there, albeit as a kid, but as somebody who was there, better to think about the baseball. If they had said on the night that Willie Mays retired as a player, if Lindsay Nelson had said, and the Mets will never again issue number 24, or if they had said the the day he went into the Hall of Fame in 1979, when he was still in Mets employ, number 24, now and forever, will be retired again. They had other things on their minds in 1979, namely how they were going to meet payroll, probably, so right. it got away from them, and the years after Mrs. Payson got away from them, new ownership came in, different priorities. Willie was banned from baseball, like Mickey Mantle was, which is just crazy to think about yep. because he he worked for gambling. And you know, Mike, you
3: can't. Oh my God! I mean, think about gambling. all the things. I mean, now here's the funny part: they get banned for gambling. How many times during a Mets game do you see the Fanduel commercial? Like,
1: think about how we where oh my we are. God.
3: I mean, think about where you were. Now, I was like – I think when that happened, it was the early 80s. i probably five, six years old. I don't want to make you feel old, Greg, but, you know, I am 45 now. So, But um, it's crazy to think about that. You know, I think, Greg, one of the things that a generation of fans, and I'll put myself in there, I think where the Willie Mays component comes into, other than the fact that you have that, that – you don't want to do things to make it seem like you're trying to create history. And I'll get to that because the Mets have history. There's no more – like when I went to Old Timer's Day in 1989, when they did the 16th, 20th anniversary of the 69 Mets – it was still a young team. He you didn't realize how young the Mets were in the 80s. But the portrayal of Willie Mays to a generation who was, wasn't there was getting thrown out at home in a World Series. Um, Yogi still
4: says he's safe. You Which didn't happen. Which didn't happen because he, Bud Harrelson was the one who got. But I'm, I'm sorry, Buddy. Right. Willie Mays, all Mays is pleading with the
3: But everybody digs that mistake, right? But Willie's like, "You safe, be safe." Yeah. And then it's always the narrative: Well, Willie came to the Mets like every other over-the-hill guy, like Jim Fregosi and Robinson Cano, if you want to throw in there, and so on and so forth. And he had nothing left. Now you were there. I mean, it sounds to me that's the problem. The narrative was such that. It was an over-the-hill star that was there to be a carnival act, despite the fact the team won a pennant. Now, you know, what I'm hearing over the weekend is like, no, he was inspirational to that team. Cleon Jones was on the show a week ago. Couldn't say enough about Willie Mays. We talked about Tommy Agee. We talked about Willie Mays. I mean, what a gentleman, Cleon Jones. I mean, I had never talked to him before. Um, and usually, when you get these sixty nine guys, I, I know the younger generation rolls their eyes. Oh, another 60. No, like you learn a lot from Cleon Jones about life, about baseball, about you know making it. You know, in a, in a rough time for 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 people of color, you know, all these kind of things. Willie Mays is, is was Mickey Mantle to him. You know, we hear about Mickey Mantle and that whole generation. For some people, Willie Mays was Mickey Mantle, so he was much more special. Yeah. And I could understand that. And that's why I could see your passion because you lived it. And thirty years from now. You know, if we're still doing this stuff, we're going to yell about somebody in twenty, no. you know, ten. You know, Gary Dickey was really good. You don't know what you're talking about about the knuckleball, so maybe not quite well, Willie Mays, but you know, yeah. Well,
4: like like I stuff. said, if they, if they had if they had said in either seventy three or seventy nine those circumstances I laid out, we're retiring number twenty four, people would have nodded and said, "Yeah, I get it." But time goes by and people come along, and no, they didn't live through it, and that's why telling this story, I think, is essential. I think at best, the Willie Mays on the Mets story has been a nice sidebar, a feel-good sidebar if it's explained properly. What they did on Saturday was melded into the greater narrative of Mets baseball, and now when it's up there, I don't think it's going to be any who, why, why Willie Mays? Now, he's he's part of the greater story. Uh, you know, yeah, Willie Mays had only so much left, although you, you look at the... Uh, the numbers in 1972 go check out who who led the team in on base percentage that year who by i think nice, it was like 20 nice years yeah 20 games in a row i think when he first came over he reached base you know hit the dramatic home run you know he and he was still yeah you know don't take my word for it you talk to cleon jones for god's sake uh right. still the smartest ball player who ever lived there's a great column by ira burkow of the times about 20 or so years ago reflecting back on Willie Mays deking the Braves out of a run in 1973, just another Sunday at Shea Stadium. But he was still capable of doing those things. So while, yeah, the the, the batting averages, things like that, not they were not up there with Cleon Jones and John Oliver and Jose Reyes in Mets history. But the the entire package and the the all well that that's the thing I wanted to point out that as Howie was explaining essentially the rationale for doing this aside from all the hot button issues that get people like me going the new york national league thread and all of that stuff he said his teammates urged it and every comment i've ever seen from anybody who played with mays as a met whether it was cleon whether it was kuzman whether it was siever all those guys said willie mays was so important to us willie mays knew so much we were so honored to play with willie mays do you need to give number twenty-four no. to another outfielder? I don't. No, so, no. So I, that and and again. So you you put all that together. You you they picked the perfect setting for it. The perfect tableau. Everybody's in a great mood. It's this incredibly warm and nostalgic sixty years of Mets baseball day. And then they layer on top of it He <laughs> surprise retirement of a number. It's, and I, you know what? Better better to do it now than to wait for the hope that his that Willie Mays' is hip will heal and he'll be up to flying across country because I never know. So, sure. Yeah. I'm absolutely. glad. And, I, and by the way, the, the message that Howie read from Willie just took it to even another level for me because that was Willie's voice. I could hear him in my head saying those things. And he's, I, I've been fortunate enough to be in a room a few times with Willie Mays in New York talking about the New York fans, talking about the New York Giant fans, talking about the New York Mets fans. And it has always meant the world to him, the relationship he's had with this city. So to to put a button on it, and for the Mets, by the way, to have seen the light and reclaimed this little piece of the Willie Mays legacy when it cost them absolutely nothing except not having number 24 to give to the next fourth outfielder is brilliant because now, hey, we're the New York Mets. Part of us is Willie Mays. So, not, not, so just simple. In, not just in some dusty realm of Warren Spahn and Eddie Murray and Roberto Alomar but we are proud to have been a part of his story and he's part of our story
3: so true and you know as I'm watching old timers day uh you know I became a fan in 1987 late 86 87 I was 10 11 years old I got swept up my dad was a Mets fan from you know when he came over uh from another country so you know, he was, he had the history of 69 and the seventies and he could appreciate how bad they were in the seventies and how special the eighties were. Um, but at that point I didn't realize. And as I'm watching old timers day, I'm saying the Mets have history. Now they're 60 years old. I had David Baghdad on uh, the author of, of the, the 62 Mets book. And I said, you know, David, they're 60 years old. They're eligible for social security. Almost like this is not a young franchise. And I could I think back to, as a kid, Going to Old Timers Day, like I said, in 1989, the 69 Mets were only 20 years old at that point. Think about it. That's like us going to the 2002 Mets. It feels like it's yesterday. And there was only 69. Mm. And yeah, there was some of those icons from 62, which were really icons from other teams. And then you had your guys from the late 70s were still playing some of them. So you only had one season. And it was always like, okay, the Mets don't have history, and let's not overstate 69. 86 was – the wounds were fresh in the 90s, and then you get into the turn of the century, and the 90s still – those guys were still playing. But now, like before our eyes, you and I, Greg, over the last 35 years, we've lived – and 50 years from now, when the Mets are still around, hopefully – you know, it's kind of like we were there during a time where history was built. Like I feel we're pioneers. What I feel lucky as a sports fan is I saw the growth of the NBA. I'm a big NBA fan. I saw the NBA go from one league to another, and I didn't realize it at the time. You, that's history. And for the Mets, I feel like we saw the Mets grow up, even though they were already, uh, you know, 25 years in when I started watching it. They've really grown up quite a bit. I mean, think about how much history we've seen, and it's not about titles; it's about experiences and players, and connections, and what we're doing, and I mean, think of all the people that over the last, since Blogosphere came out, that I've met, that I mean, you and I might never know each other, if not for the Mm. internet, you know, maybe Mm. passing a ball game, so I don't know if you, that's my takeaway as I watch the game, is that I live through history, that's something, I didn't live through the moon landing, but I lived through, you know, Mets history in some way.
4: Baseball history is day-to-day, as much as it is titles, and numbers on a wall and things like that you know I had the epiphany you're describing in 2000 when the Mets held in the aftermath of not having old timers day one of the better ceremonies they ever had was something called 10 greatest moments day they did a fan survey this newfangled internet thing (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they asked people to vote. What are the 10 greatest moments in Mets history? And they brought people back. Again, they didn't put them in uniform and they didn't have them play a game, but they've had them introduced uh, from Frank Thomas in 1962 right up through celebrating the Grand Slam single and Todd Pratt's series winning home run and the trade of Mike Piazza, which at the time was a for the fresh. 10 greatest moments. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, anytime you do something like that, things are people are going to have a recency bias and that's great because it was just fun to do it Willie May showed up for that Tug McGraw was there guys who you wouldn't necessarily have a chance to see again too often and it hit me that Sunday afternoon this is the same weekend that they had brought over Mike Bordick and Bubba and they each had a home uh-huh. run and I they remember. swept the Cardinals so it was a great great all-around feeling it was just like sort of like this weekend like Doing this weekend when the Mets are in first place all year is better than doing it in, say, 1994, to name a year. But in 2000, it hit me. me. This franchise is mature. This is no longer just an expansion team, which was just living off of 69 and 73 and then 86 and kind of doing the Rodney Dangerfield, (laughs) adjusting the collar thing to, uh, to talk about 88 and everything that came after. So the pieces have been there and the history has been there and they've been so weirdly reluctant to really, as they say in business, activate it. But now they've gone full force into it. I mean, this was, you know, the culmination and hopefully also the launching pad for more. But if you listen to Jay Harwitz's podcast, which is absolutely charming and you have, you know, one old player after another come on with him as well as other guests And you generally pay attention to what the Mets do on social media besides the day-to-day stuff of 2022. And you just, you know, look around the ballpark and you're just aware now that the Mets are aware and that the fans have wanted this. And again, kudos to Steve Cohn for when he comes in and buys a team and people want to gripe at him and say, Hey Steve, why don't you bring back old timer's day? And he says, okay there you go and just like not that, hard just like yeah. that it happened a like lot of hard work jay harwitz and a lot of people had to make it happen and you had to have people who wanted to show up uh, and they certainly did 65 of them and yeah you had to we had to prove that we really did care and show up and the place was sold out and there was so much passion there so this this is uh, to, to use one of gary Cohn's phrases this is a seminal event in New York Mets history.
3: Absolutely. And I think Cohen has gotten a lot of credit. I mean, we know about how winning and payroll plays into that, but the Mets are a goldmine. I always tell the story. I remember right after the 06 uh, uh, season that ended in a disappointment, I felt like they were ready to take the, the, the next jump. And I was so disappointed in 07, how early on the disappointment of game seven seemed to drag over with the fans, not the team And there was a lot more empty seats than I thought I would have expected. The booing, the negativity. And I remember, you know, saying this is a jewel franchise. Like there's a lot to be, you know, happy about. We know what happened there. And I think all along there's this submersion of all this uh, energy and anticipation and great fandom. I'm nothing against Yankee fans and, and other sports in this town. Like this is a really good fan base. This is a goofy fan base. It's a frustrating fan base. But it's a, it's, it's a great home field advantage in a postseason game. And when the fans show up, uh, you know, the place is special. And I think Cohen sees that because, let's face it, the guy doesn't need to do this, Greg. He's wealthy beyond immeasurable. Like, there's a lot of better things he could do with $15 billion. And sinking a lot of that into the black hole of a franchise that is, I know there's games being played with taxes, and I, I get it, that, that sports teams are more profitable than they do on paper. But there's a lot of overhead there. And if you have 15 billion, there's only one way a sports franchise can bring you is down, you know, and, 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 you know, it's not like he needs another 5 billion to live comfortably. He's doing this. I don't think altruistically don't get me wrong, but I think he's understanding. This is not just like a ledger sheet and there's so many owners in professional sports that they are not into the whole thing. They're not into the team. I'm I'm
4: sure. I'm sure the numbers are moved around and there's lots of money, lots of money is spent and there's lots of money to be made, but. Steve Cohn, kid from Great Neck, Long Island, was taken to the polo grounds early in his life. Rode the train to Shea Stadium on the Port Washington line, and had a tiny stake in the New York right. Mets at City Field. So this was what he wanted to do. He wanted to buy a baseball team. He tried to buy the Dodgers some years ago, which I remember like we would say about the previous owner. Sure, but you know th- this—the <laughs> New York Mets became available. It was a match made in both passion and fiduciary heaven and here we are bearing the fruits of it now we can't be guaranteed that every season is going to see the Mets at 35 games above 500 in late August and holding off the Atlanta Braves and somehow being in a position where they're going to the playoffs I'm not even superstitious about saying that because of the way the playoffs are set up now you know there's going to be a year where we're going to be annoyed because the Mets are not going to the playoffs, but we'll worry about that then uh just to have a a franchise being operated the way we all dream it would be operated right You know you talk about a jewel of a franchise. This is the language that was used as the franchise was passing from the des and Charles Payson to nelson doubleday and his minority partner fred wilpon that this franchise is too good to let wither and die on the vine back then the idea of a quote national league franchise in new york meant something so much more than just another baseball team and of course they built it they built it into something amazing no pun intended and immense in the mid-1980s and we bore the fruit of that and you know ups and downs ebbs and flows the whole bit and then we just seem to have gotten into this Kafka-esque pit that we can never quite climb out of. And even in, in the good periods, like the one you mentioned, circa 2006, both Jason Fry and, and me at Faith and Fear and Flushing were writing constantly about what a great new era this is. That not only is this team so good and and built so well and built to last, we're getting this great new ballpark. We have this great new network. You know, no, no more of this silly little team out in Queens, and that fell apart before you knew it. And but here we are, and if we can't be sure of the future, we can feel pretty good about the present, and we can embrace the past, every bit of it. As far as I'm concerned, even those years that you're never going to see a banner flying for, because it's what makes us who we are as fans. You Absolutely. know, we were we were at games in 1994 and yep. 2003 and 2017. And name your year of diminished expectations. And you know what? If at old timers day, I don't know if it's gonna be annual. I hope it'll at least be regular old timers day. 2027. They wanted to bring back Jeff Randcourt or Jason Bay or name your utility infielder who did not flourish of choice. I'll be there, and I will be standing and applauding. Even Bobby Benia, little... you'll you'll stand yes. for Bobby. You know yes. what? In this here, here you go. In this context, on Saturday, I'll, I'll throw a few names at you that were not universally applauded from where I was sitting. Mike Hampton, Doug Sisk, Steve Traxel, so, Joe. Tory, and I like Doug. I, Doug is I, such a nice
3: applauded guy.
4: Applauded extra loud for every one of them because right. you come back for something like this. Yes. Yeah. Even Bobby Benia who probably should be there yeah. because, hey, he's being paid to be there. But, um yeah, I think I, I think I could let most of my animus go for one day for anybody who wore the Met uniform if they were to come back and just say, hey, Mets fans, I was a Met. I was happy to be a Met. I appreciate the support yeah. that you gave me, even between everything that went wrong. Listen, there's some guys who are never going to come back, and it's not like I'm going to be banging the gong to get them back, but it's a, it's just... You know what? For somebody who came of age in the 2010s, a guy like Jeff Randor, a guy like Jason Bay, a guy like Scott Hairston, you know,
2: those were their yeah. favorites. And someday those they're going to say, "Yeah, I
4: sure, I sure hope they'll invite back Scott Hairston someday." And I, you know, I, that's how I—I I, I wasn't a kid at the time, but Rico Bronia, for example, was one of my favorites. I always loved in the Rico Bronya.
3: Yep. Yeah. Always and so the Rico idea Brogno. that
4: Rico Bronio was now an old first birthday.
3: Jersey, when they started allowing you to do MLB jerseys, yeah. first Jersey I bought was a Rico Bronio Jersey. Yeah. And then four right. years later, when he got traded to the Phillies, I, I sold it on eBay, my first transaction on eBay, because I was yeah, into right. John Oldrood at that time, you know? So yeah. it tells you, cause I was originally a ke- big Keither I was left-handed. Yeah. I was a left-handed first baseman as a kid and yeah. so on, but you know, you're right. I mean, there's, I, I it drives me crazy. Anybody who's negative about the Mets right now, look, I don't know if they're going to win a championship. I don't know if they're going to win the division. I think they're set up well. They've got a top payroll. They're embracing their history. They're cleaning up the organization. They're trying to have a focus on player development in the minor leagues. We'll see if, you know, the decisions they made at the deadline come back to bite them. Um, they clearly have an owner that wants to invest in the big league roster. They have a good management team at the very least for the next four years. I think they got a leader in the dugout that you can trust and hopefully they're building uh, a pipeline where his successor can be developed within the organization. Cause I've always felt that's important. Um, there's not a lot to, to be unhappy about at this point. I will say this, I'll ask you this as we wrap up, uh, for me though, seeing Daniel Murphy and Bartolo Colon as old timers, was a little jarring, I have to say. Now, Cespedes, I did I did, you, did I miss him? Did he show up, or he decided not to come? He did. He said he was gonna, and then he and went he bailed. Off to do Maybe he was Cespedes. running for a while. You born.
4: know what? What what could be a more perfect representation of you and a Cespedes and him us getting excited about him coming and he's and not, then not being and there. he's not there. No, I would have Would have I would still love to see him, and I hope he does at some point. Hey, listen, if you keep having old-timers days, the greater the chances you're going to see more of the guys who, you know, people had said. After the weekend, yeah, that was great. But why wasn't so-and-so there? Well, maybe next time, which would be wonderful.
3: Absolutely. Well, maybe they'll have like a reunion old-timers day for all of us who used to go into uh, City Field when nobody wanted to be there. We all had our, uh, you know... Our little powwows. That's how we all met each other. Steve Keem, you. (laughs) I wish I could have made it to the ballpark on Saturday. I could not. Steve was actually at, I talked to Steve at an event. But you represented, you represented well. Obviously, you have a podcast as well, which is great stuff. And people should check it out. You say you're not a talk radio guy, but you really are. You're like the old school. When I was growing up, my aunt used to put on. She was on Grand Street in the city, one of these old talk radio shows. Soothing, soothing talk. Nothing crazy like the craziness that goes on now. But I remember at night she put the radio on and listened to the radio because that's what people did in the 1970s and 60s and 50s growing up. And you have that soothing way, so you can raise your voice to me because I know it's passion and that's what we need here. So, who are well, they? Can, well, can I'm, they I'm glad you?
4: we're doing this over Zoom because I I'm glad we're doing it over Zoom because I'm I'm sure you saw me smiling as I was raising
5: my voice. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, by the way,
4: I. I uh, I loved I loved Clyde Frazier. It broke my heart to see him <laughs> on the Cleveland Cavaliers. And if the Cleveland Cavaliers, have you, the are good a taste, you are a Nets I, fan, I, though you are Nets. I here very very briefly, Knicks fan first because I didn't know what the ABA was yet. About six months, about three months after discovering the Knicks, I discovered the Nets. I rooted for both of them throughout the seventies because why not? They were both in in different leagues. So right. at some point, I had to make a choice. And uh, I just veer to the team that rhymed with Mets, apparently. But um, as far as Clyde was concerned, if the Cleveland Cavaliers had the good taste to honor Clyde Frazier, I would, from afar, because I don't really care what the Cleveland Cavaliers do, I would salute Salute. I can't. I can't. And if the Los Angeles Rams want to put number 12 up for Joe Namath, then live and be well.
3: (laughs) There you go. Well, Greg, thank you so much. This has been a blast. Um, let everybody know. So where can they find you? NL town? Wait, let, let them know about the podcast. I'm sure they know about uh, you, but anybody sure. who's not listening yet.
4: Sure. Uh, I, although it is not my thing as it is Mike's, uh, I have have decided to, uh, I would call it a lark, but we, we try to do a good job. Um, my friend Jeff Heisen and I do a podcast called national league town. The idea being that the Mets exist because New York was considered a national league town and we try to keep that spirit informing everything we do. But we talk about the current Mets, we talk about the Mets of the past. What what is our uh, our, our uh, motto? Is uh, Mets? I should remember. We we say it every week: Mets life, Mets history, Mets fandom, something like that. So uh, you can go to any uh, platform and, and type in National League Town. And, of course, uh, Faith and Fear and Flushing, uh, still uh, blogging uh, day after day with my pal Jason Fry. And so happy that not only do we get to blog about a team where the undercurrent isn't what's wrong with the Mets, but we are going to get to blog postseason games for the first time since one night in 2016. And uh, we, we've only done it three postseasons before. You'll and... get at least two nights. You get at least two nights if
3: they're a wild card team, at least yeah. two nights. And I'm hoping a little bit more. I I'm think anticipating we'll uh, a few weeks. I am. I'm, I'm anticipating a few gra- very good, very good weeks, <laughs> good weeks. And when they win a title, you're my go-to. You, Steve Keen, we're going to raise a glass somewhere because when nobody gave a you-know-what, we were trying to, well, you, Steve, were, were more banging the drum. I was there stirring it up and making trouble and all that stuff. But I always looked up to you guys because I said these guys were around, before, you know, you're like my, you know, same era as my dad. Don't mean it we're disrespectfully, gonna... you know. You know what we're
4: gonna. You know what Steve and I are going to do. We're going. I don't drink coffee, but I'm going to lay in an extra supply of diet cola. I'm going to stay up <laughs> all night. We're going to start what we would have called in the past a party line, so we can just be on every. We can all be on each other's podcasts. There you go. We'll just do
3: a whole thing. That's great. And uh, I'm, virtually, I'm virtually pour champagne on each other's heads. <laughs> From your mouth to the baseball gods, yes. Greg, enjoy the rest of your night. Be well. I appreciate you coming on. And uh, thanks again, my friend. A pleasure, Mike. Thank you. And that's Greg Prince. Greg, faith and fear and flushing. Check him out. Good stuff. All right. Spirited conversation. You got to love it. That's what this is all about. All right. Let's take a quick break. We'll wrap up. your listening to Talk About this podcast. We'll be back with more right after this.
2: they dirty. Yeah. Ball's gone. Ball's gone. Are you holding me, Ralph. fans. Yeah, you said that already.
1: And the question here is, is this the best Dodgers team of the century? Think about it. They're currently 10 games better than they were at this point last year when they won 106 games. They're on their sixth best 120-game start of the divisional era. That goes back to 1969. Yeah, it's not even the Dodgers' best start in the last decade. I mean, this is a team that in some ways could challenge the 98 Yankees. We thought the Yankees themselves might challenge that, but instead it's the Dodgers. And I get it, Kev. We kind of get spoiled by success. Same old, same old. But they're doing this right now without Bueller, without Kirk. Persha, the fact that Gallo's the number nine hitter, Bellinger's in eighth, I mean, is this Dodgers team as good as a catcher when talking about L.A. baseball? No, I I can't
6: answer that yet. The record's great, all that stuff. They do great matchups. They set guys up to succeed. They have all of this stuff going, but I don't know if they're the greatest team that we've ever seen. I grew up a Dodger fan. I love the Dodgers. I sat there and watched Dusty Baker and Ron Say and Steve Garvey and Jerry Royce and all of the guys, so I'm sitting around going, yeah, this is awesome. I don't know if it's the best team. This is, and I'm not taking anything away. You know, they do such an amazing job of the analytics and putting guys in six situations to succeed. And I mean, Goslin hasn't gotten any credit. Anderson doing his thing. Urias doing his thing. That's a maze back. And they're doing this without Clayton Kershaw and Walker Buehler, which would be crazy to think about. Right. Because when they're right and that's the one 2 punch going in the post, you're like, whoa, this is a remarkable team. I don't know if they're the best team ever. I know one thing that at some point this league like there's like you could tell me there's 14 guys maybe going to get in the postseason. right? So it's a little bit of, the divisions sometimes get lopsided, but they are a solid, solid baseball club right now. I've never seen a team go out there and win games like this at this level consistently consistently with that many wins right now.
1: Yeah, their offensive numbers in particular are amazing. Number one OBP, slugging, WOBA, WRC+, you name it. These guys have been unbelievable, as LA certainly is impressive. They're unbelievable. Right, but I'm with you. Let's see what happens come playoff time. Because still, if you tell me Dodgers, Mets, and LCS, and I got Scherzer DeGrom staring me down, you might be picking the Mets. So we'll see.
3: We're back. A couple of quick things. I mean, Greg Prince get a little feisty with me when I even brought up the debate about the Willie Mays number. That was really good radio. I really enjoyed that, and I hope you did. And and that's what this show is all about, you know, fun conversation, debate. Uh, and I know Greg for a long time, and, and he—you know, there's nobody else I would go to when I say, hey, what do you think about, you know, this situation in, in, in a historical Mets context? And that's, that's Greg, so— Really fun segment. Well, you heard the little trailer coming in. Uh, I thought it was creative as we prepare for the Dodgers series later uh, tomorrow. I mean, you're probably listening to this Tuesday morning, but you know, later tonight, tomorrow, depending on when you get this. And the Mets are taking on the Dodgers. And uh, look, the Mets are three games up in the division. Right now it's about, uh, talk about survive in advance. That was kind of the road trip, the four and six disappointing road trip. The first really disappointing road trip I think they had because they lost the last couple of games at Yankee Stadium. But right now, it's about finishing the job and winning the division. And I think this Dodgers series is the demarcation line because after this, it's going to get a little easier. But as you saw at Colorado on Sunday, and I say this all the time, I don't care if they're playing the Pirates, the Cubs down the stretch, the Nats. These are professional baseball teams, and you're going to be in late inning games where you're either ahead or behind by a run or two and there are going to be players on the other team, whether it's a veteran that every team has that still has something in the tank and could be useful if they were on a contending team, or a young player that says, hey, this is my chance to get established and get a paycheck, they're dangerous. And right now, the Mets, if they go 18 and 15-ish, they're going to win 100 games. And I don't know if that's enough. I mean, right now, even though the Braves have a little bit of tougher schedule, the Phillies are going to play a, play a big part in whether or not The Braves win the division because they're playing them a ton down the stretch. Mets are probably going to have to win 103, 104 games. So that's first number one, a priority. Number two is when they get into the postseason, as I said earlier, we feel really confident that they're going to be able to compete in any series against everybody but the Dodgers. Now, we saw them out in L.A. and the Mets had that big Medina save that, that salvaged the split. And they had lost the first couple of games where they were basically smothered by the Dodgers pitching. Now, you're not getting Walker Buehler's out now for the rest of the year. You're not getting Gonzalez. Who knows if Kershaw makes his start on Sunday, uh, excuse me, on Thursday. Uh, You get Tyler Anderson, who looked pretty good with Pittsburgh when the Mets faced him last year and has elevated his game like most of these guys. You know, the Dodgers and the Astros. I don't know what the secret sauce is with bullpen arms and pitchers. But, man, if the Mets could figure that out. And I think they have to a certain degree with Jeremy Hefner and their group over there. But it's amazing what's going on there. Uh, You know, Andrew Haney, who was knocked around the ball yard as a member of the Yankees, now goes out to L.A. and is a solid pitcher. I guess I, I mocked how you got that big contract based on analytics. But right now I look like the dope on that whole thing. But this is the benchmark. And I know I use the. I love Friday Night Lights. I love that movie. Now the show was good too. The 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 series, but the movie was great and that's how you know I compared uh, Permian uh, at, uh against Dallas Carter in that uh that high school football championship in Texas football to the Mets and the Dodgers, saying they're big, they're strong, they're dirty, you know. Did I say they were they were big, yeah. you know, whatever that that line is. So um it's kind of – it's not it's a little bit overstated because I don't think it's David and Goliath quite like it normally is presented when the Mets are involved because I think the Mets have components of their team that are every bit the Dodgers. But right now the Dodgers are the class of the National League, class of baseball. What's interesting about the Dodgers is they're about, to, about a week away from clinching the division, which is pretty darn early. Even at the heyday in the modern era of the 98 Yankees and post-Yankees um, – winning World Series then. I mean, that Yankees team in 98 averaged six runs a game. I mean, think about that. I know there was a steroid era, but geez. I mean, that's one of the top 10 runs per game averages in the history of the sport. It's right up there with other great Yankees teams from the 30s and 40s and a much more, even though it wasn't steroids, much more offensive era. But even those Yankee teams, I've never felt there was a gap Post 98, maybe in 98 to a certain degree, but even then, that team was greater than the sum of its parts at times. I've compared this Yankee, uh, Mets team, to some of those Yankee teams where guys just fit. Individually, they weren't sexy like a Scott Brocious, but they fit. And together, they made beautiful music in the form of winning baseball games. And, but this Dodgers team, when I look up and down, and the last time the Mets were there, In LA, Max Muncie wasn't in the lineup, I believe. I don't think Justin Turner was playing, so you got a couple of bats now in there. I mean, Freddie Freeman's playing a hell of a lot better than he was back then. You know, Trey Turner is a pest on the base pads. He seems to always get big hits, and he's fast. Uh, Mookie Betts is an elite. I mean, they got three elite, elite offensive players, and the Mets have Pete Alonso and Francisco Lindor, who are very good offensive players. I think they're a notch below those guys. I mean, maybe Lindor's right there with Turner, but maybe a notch below, and they have a lot of good, very good component-type offensive players, and they're built on Edwin Diaz, and their starting pitching. The Dodgers are built on these three really elite and really good offensive up and down the lineup. Um, some reclamation projects that have jumped out, like Gonzalez. Gonsolin. Now, is actually not a reclamation, but Tyler Anderson – uh, you know, Gonslin's twenty eight years old, and and you know he's been with the Dodgers a while, and this is kind of like his breakout season. So maybe that's a little bit of a surprise, but you know they got some good arms that they've got. You know guys like Evan Phillips and um, and uh, Gratterall and and Vezia, and you know guys coming out of the bullpen. I think the big difference is the Mets have an elite, probably the best clothes in the game, and Craig Kimbrel, who I've always been skeptical of. Those who listen to the program. It's quite simply not. He's a below-league average pitcher. And I think when it comes down to whose closer I trust more, I think it's the Mets by a mile. So maybe that's where the real uh, advantage for the Mets is. But uh, do I think it's important for the Mets to win the series? I think it's important for the Mets to win ballgames to – get this division lead from three and up and put the Braves in their rearview mirror. And every game they win is one less game they have to worry about as they get to that 100-plus mark to solidify this division and potentially get a bye as one of the top two division winners. But I think uh, think it's important for them to see where they are versus the Dodgers. Because this is the team that's going to be standing in front of them. Nobody's going to beat them for them. I, I can't see that. I mean I don't I don't even know if you know the Braves you know Braves have a losing record against winning teams. I don't think the Phillies could beat them. I know everybody was going gaga about the Padres. They, that's come back down to earth. Cardinals are tough. I told you that earlier in the year and they've kind of shown me to be correct. They're 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 a plucky team. They're a team that sometimes when you look at them individually, you know, not so great up and down the lineup and the pitching staff, but really good all coming together similar to the Mets. No one's going to knock the Dodgers out of the way and make the Mets' life easier. The Mets are going to have to take these guys head on. Steve Cohen said in his first press conference, this is who he wants to be. Well, if you want to beat them, you got to beat them. you got to slay the dragon. So I'm looking at this as a test. I don't want to make declarations coming out of this one way or the other. The Mets can beat the Dodgers. The Mets can't. But it is something I'm looking at. This is the go get them phase. It's not the getting-to-know-you phase like we say early in the year. In the go get them phase, I got to see the Mets go get them. And I want to see where they are against the Dodgers. So, yeah, it's a test. The Mets have passed every test. I mean, I'm not going to, like, knock them because they had one bad road trip. Uh, and it was, like, four and six. I mean, it was a bad couple of games against the Yankees there who were slumping badly. And they don't need to prove anything because I'm not going to change my look on who they are as a team and what they've accomplished to date. But if they can't put a good performance against the Dodgers, even though it's a small sample size during a time where – the offense has tailed off a little bit since Philadelphia. Um, I have to take some kind of uh, information from that that says, hey, this is going to translate itself into a short series in the postseason, which is, let's face it, guys, postseason like five, six weeks away. It's right there in front of us. It's not a distant in the future. It's there in front of us. There's going to be some chill on the on, on the pumpkin. You're going to wake up, and there's going to be some 55-degree mornings that are going to shock your system because you've been accustomed to the, the warm summer months. They're right around the corner. It's going to get darker early. You know postseason baseball is upon us because you see it when you go walk outside and you see the sun dropping down low a little bit earlier than normal. You're getting that winter feel in front of us. The season's right there. You know, the hope of spring is in the past. So... Um, i 'll be looking out for that it 'll be interesting i'm you know this is going to be a test series it 's going to be a fun series and more than likely i 'm going to come to you after the series and recap it and give you my thoughts and uh you know we have Labor Day coming up we 'll see kind of what um you know uh, you know what we do with a show and whatnot but stay tuned for that so hope you enjoyed the program uh great conversation with Greg Prince. I certainly enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, time to uh, go get it done and see how the Mets stack up against the best of the best. That's the Dodgers. with This crazy run differential, 50 games over 500, and they're pretty much ready to clinch the division on Labor Day. Can't ask for—listen, that's about as close to perfect as you're going to get in baseball. This is about as dominant gap I've seen from a baseball team uh, in my young lifetime, you know, I think it's even I mean the gap between them and everybody else is greater than what you may have talked about in nineteen ninety eight with the Yankees and I'm serious about that, you know um, you know very uh, you know, I never saw a Braves team with this kind of gap between them and the competition, and uh, you know they are every bit the juggernaut I make a make a joke about using the Friday Night lights analogy, but it's it's kind of true when you think about it. All right, uh, I want to thank everybody for joining us. I want to thank Greg Prince for joining us. You could check me out all the time at com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to act, interact with me, Mike Silva at com, No G. Mike Silva at com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. Enjoy the Dodger series. Until next time.
0: Take care of the 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 for the party.